Welcome, everyone. We'll, we'll let some more people file in. I just tweeted about it, and um, it's getting shared in various um, secret conspiratorial um, signal groups. So we'll give it a couple minutes to let people start filing in. Um, you know, Jeff, I, as a site, well, I'll, let me, I guess, introduce you um, and let me know if the, the bio's wrong anywhere. Um, I should say we, we're, we're colleagues and that we're both fellows at the, Lin the Lincoln Network, which I think everyone who follows me knows kind of what it is. It's a unique sort of think tank slash whatever DC organization that tries to bridge the gap between uh, tech and politics, um, which I think is a gap worth narrowing at this point. And then you yourself, I think, were uh, a correspondent in Asia for The Economist at some point. You have a whole long list of writing credits. You had a book about Samsung. And then more recently, I, I start, I have, I'll confess, I started reading it today, but I was just, just you know, tearing through it, um, your book on the Chinese surveillance state called The Perfect Police State, which is wonderful, but also horrifying in terms of what it actually details about what's going on with the Uyghurs. Um, and, and by the way, as, as a partial prompt for this whole conversation, not that the topic, of course, isn't worthwhile in and of itself, it was the whole like Chamath blow up last week, which for those who didn't tune into it. Um, he basically expressed his indifference at the situation of the Uyghurs, which, um, um, you know, he rapidly became a meme about it not being up to his line. So um, with that intro, I'll shut up, Jeff. Um, and uh, I'll let you, if you want to chime in and correct anything in the bio that I, that I got wrong. No, no, that that's all. Uh, that's all right. Yeah. So I, um, I, I was a correspondent. I was at The Economist many years ago, but I was a correspondent for other uh, newspapers back in the day when people read newspapers, but also just, you know, websites and magazines uh, in various countries. So my specialty is is trying to get as far inside authoritarian regimes as we can. I've been um, I, I've been I've been in, I've, I've been in North Korea many times. I, I've traveled there four times. I've covered a genocide in Myanmar, um, you know, reporter from Vietnam, China, which we're going to talk about tonight. Also, Russia, uh, Turkey, Venezuela spent some time in Cuba. Um, so, you know, basically my whole thing, you know, every, uh, every piece I write, every book that I'm working on ties into this theme of how authoritarian regimes in, in our century are deploying novel technologies in the ways that we don't anticipate them to be deployed. No, it's interesting. You mentioned, I've, I've also reported kind of illegally from Cuba. I did a whole piece on how the internet worked there in 2017 and, um, you know, it's amazing, you know, my parents are human exiles. And so I, I knew a lot about Cuba and stuff, but, you know, living there, I think one of the things that I think most Americans don't understand, um, is Jeff, by the way, I, you might want to mute. I, I, I think it's probably you. There's a little bit of noise coming through it, just when you're not done, when you're not speaking. Um, one of the amazing things about being in Cuba, and I think you illustrate this very well, by the way, in your book is living in a police state is so bizarre, <laughs> Right. Like and you have way more experience here than I do. But just my personal experience in Cuba, the feeling of just being naked against the state, being in a society in which I mean, Cuba, for those who aren't familiar, is, is basically a police state and it's completely isolated from the outside world. Right. There's no outside capitalism or business or very few of them. Anyhow. And so you really feel as if you're in this weird rogue country, almost on a different planet. Um, and 
you know, the, the government can do anything. You have, you have no rights. There's extrajudicial arrests. There's imprisonment. There's all that stuff. And, you know, after a while, someone kind of told me they figured out I was reporting. They're like, you know, if you really get close to a lot of the dissidents, you're going to end up in the little room in, like, the secret police. You're going to get interrogated, and then you're going to get deported, right? Like, this is just going to happen, just FYI, so you know. And when I finally left, I just could not wait to get out of there. <laughs> and everything that you learned in, like, eighth-grade civics class or whatever about freedom and, you know, warding against the depredations of the state, which all seem very abstract when you're living in the U.S., suddenly it made sense, and you have an appreciation for something like the American Constitution that you would never have had before. Um, but anyhow, that's just my comment on it. You've had way more experience. So I'm curious, what, what drew you to authoritarian states and how do you cope with like, what to me was like just the intolerable stress of kind of living under the, the boot heel? Yeah. So, um, authoritarian states. So, uh, originally I was, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, this was back in 2008 and 2009, I was a technology journalists and i was i was kind of involved in the startup scene um out out in the valley as you know kind of an outside advisor just working on different topics one of the big companies that i was covering then was google um which you know back then had their their major slogan don't be evil um and so you know there was this narrative that uh you know big tech that facebook and all these firms they're they're gonna they're going to save us. They're going to network the world and make everything awesome. Um, and so I, I got my first assignments as a foreign correspondent. I, I, I was pushed overseas um, and I began covering China and Korea and these, and these other places that were at the time starting to grasp the implications of these technologies of, of social media and um, the idea of being hyper networked and, you know, and big data and it's, you know, the, the, the early, uh, developments in AI back then, um, and you know, I, I one of the one of the things that that drew me to this topic was just the overwhelming um, reality that I think a lot of us saw early on, who were based overseas, uh, that the narrative that was developing um, in the U.S. was not going to hold everywhere. That you know, the U.S. it does have its constitution and its rule of law, and maybe we would be able to constrain these novel technologies from being deployed maliciously, um, you know, which also didn't totally come true. But it was very clear early on, more than a decade ago, um, that the the tech that American firms were big into um, were already becoming a tool for extreme repression So uh, around the world. And so, uh, you know, as a, you know, as a writer, uh, as a journalist, I had been to all these places. I, you know, so so going to North Korea, that's a, that's the kind of country where you go, and um, you really feel like you're stepping into the past. You're you're going, you know, seventy years back in time, and it, it's the height of the Cold War, and you see the goose stepping soldiers and the goofy uh, uniforms, um, and you you just can't really take it seriously. I mean, North Korea is a terrible place. It's a, it's extremely authoritarian, but um, I personally never felt threatened there. I didn't feel like I was in any kind of danger. That's not true for everyone because that I'm not I'm not uh, sugarcoating the reality. There are, you know, dangers and there are threats. You do have to be careful. But in my case, I just didn't run into trouble. Um, but as as I was doing this this work with these, you know, studying these authoritarian regimes, interviewing defectors, um, former officials from all these countries, I had also been traveling over the decade out to Xinjiang, China, which is the um, it's a it's a landmass in Western China. 
about twice the size of Texas, a big oasis, desert and mountain region that is predominantly Muslim. And as I went over there over time, um, I just witnessed this really terrifying descent uh, of just, you know, starting out as a region that was already kind of repressed. But I, I just witnessed over the years this descent into absolute um, just uh, technological tyranny. And what drew me to this particular region and this topic in, in particular was the um, just the, the, the sci-fi you know, nature of it, just the, the, the sci-fi, um, you know, the, the dystopia, the, the sense of doom that I always got when I, when I went there. Uh, my most recent trip was in December, 2017. I haven't been back since cause I don't think it's safe anymore. Um, so one of my, one of my acquaintances was uh, taken to prison in China for three years. He was a hostage in this, um, you know, th- this back and forth between Canada and China that happened with Huawei um, so, you know, when that happened, I just decided it was not possible to go back to China anymore. It's just not safe. But when I got off the the uh, the airplane that last time, it was the last of my six trips to Xinjiang, I, I just literally felt this uh, this wave of terror just overcome me because I felt that I had stepped out into this barren uh, post-apocalyptic landscape where I was being watched by... Um, multiple, just dozens and dozens of cameras on every street corner. Uh, there were police pillboxes everywhere. These these guys were, you know, they had armored vehicles out in the streets and they were armed with um, these these sunglasses that they can look at you and they can they can see your um, your ID and your name based, you know, just by looking at you. Like I I really had felt that I had entered some kind of future, you know, um, like a minority report dystopia, minority report, the the movie with Tom Cruise, the old Philip K. Dick novel, and also like a 1984 or um, Fahrenheit 451. Um, And that is not an exaggeration because I did go on to write this book and I interviewed 168 people, most of them who were refugees who had been through a system of concentration camps um, and who had literally, I mean, just, uh, you know, with no exaggeration, who who literally described these, um, the, just the, the terrors of these old science fiction novels happening in real life. I mean, one uh, woman who I spent a lot of time with had been through a concentration camp in, in the region. She was tortured and brainwashed and uh, all of her books were burned. She was considered... Um, too smart, too intellectual, and so, and so she lost her uh, library. Um, just to give one example, uh, there were other a lot of other cases where um, so people who had uh, say done something that the state considered suspicious. So so maybe they uh, one of the biggest examples is like they would go to the grocery store. Um, this is very common in the region. Like if you buy parenting you know, tools, maybe baby clothes or, or diapers, the, 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 uh, the cameras that are connected to this AI system will determine that you're more trustworthy and the system will trust you more. But say if you go buy cigarettes or beers or something, you know, not considered good, um, then your trustworthiness will lower. Um, and then what will happen is that the AI system um, that's deployed in this region, it'll determine that certain people are more prone and likely to commit acts of terrorism or crime, violent crime than other people. And, the, and it'll send a nudge to the smartphones of police officers who are nearby this person 
and they'll be requested to go and interview them uh, about a pre-crime, like you're going to commit a crime in the future. And if the, you know, if things seem too suspicious, like you bought too many cigarettes or whatever it might be, the system will declare that you are to be taken away to a concentration camp um, for many years of brainwashing. Usually it's a seven-year term that they say it could be any amount of time and you'll be brainwashed and psychologically tortured, physically tortured, and molded into uh, a, a good citizen of the state. Um, and this is because of the, this, this like absolutely just out of control use of AI that doesn't have any basis in, in actual reality or actual data. You will, you will be charged with a pre-crime and you will be branded an enemy of the state forever. So this is, uh, you know, Minority Report with Tom Cruise. It's like those old uh, science fiction movies. I mean, we could go on and on about George Orwell. Some of the Uyghurs who I interviewed had read George Orwell. They read 1984 uh, in Chinese when they were living in China, interestingly. And they just couldn't believe how realistic the depiction was of their everyday life uh, living in this one region of China. So that's what the book is about. It's the perfect police state. Uh, I spent... Uh, a lot of time in Xinjiang, China, and also three years in Turkey, where the refugees are um, getting inside their community, interviewing them, uh, and, you know, just piecing together what exactly was going on. Uh, right. In, in one of your later chapters, um, <clears throat> to sort of extend the horror, you're mentioning how the, um, the arm of the Chinese surveillance state extends even to Turkey. And some of that is through political and economic pressure that China can now apply, for example, to the Turkish government, um, which is surprising because, you know, Turkish is kind of a, it, it's in theory a secular state, but it's definitely a, a Muslim-oriented government, and yet it's colluding with the Chinese government. <laughs> um, and uh, anyhow, it, but yeah, I mean, what you describe, it's almost this Black Mirror episode, and you kind of walk through the everyday part of it. I think um, the person's name was Maisem. Am I remembering that correctly? What was her name? Yeah, that's um, correct. That's her. Yeah. Yeah. And it just describes her everyday life in which this intrusive state is basically monitoring everything she does. Oh, uh, let's invite you back up. I think, Jeff, maybe you, you might have fat fingered the exit button instead of the mute button. Uh, there we go. I'm back up. I'm, I'm here. Okay. Um, it's funny. I, I note that uh, David Sachs, one of the backers of Colin, is in the thing. So it's a good piece of feedback that. Guests for some reason tend to opt out of being on the speaking panel instead of hitting the mute button for some uh, for some reason. Um, in, in any case, you you, de you describe this total horror show. So I guess I I, I wonder um, not not to make light of it, but I'm I'm curious. Did you ever speak to like sort of everyday Chinese in terms of what is their perception of this police state? Is, is this level of scrutiny something that you only see in the Xinjiang province, but then don't see say in Shanghai, such that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind? what is the take there? I mean, do, do, do they understand what it is, but on the other hand think, well, but on net, you know, obviously they've raised a lot of people to poverty. The streets are relatively clean and crime free. So we like the trade. What's the general, what's the non-Uyghur reaction? to? I have spoken to a lot of Han Chinese people, the general consensus, um, this is in Beijing and Shanghai in particular, and also Xinjiang, uh, and a few other places. So we're talking major but, um, metropolitan centers. There's um, there's a vague understanding of what's going on. So people do know that um, there's a, a situation out in Xinjiang, but the way that the average person sees it, and we're talking like a, 
you know, middle class, educated um, worker who you'll you'll bump into the street in in a big city in China, they say that um, this is it's ultimately for the good of China because um, it's not uh, they'll they'll reject the genocide accusation. This is not a crime against humanity. This is not a genocide. They'll typically say um, that this is a process of reeducation that a lot of people have to go through to become true Chinese uh, citizens. Um, so. Uh, in in China, there is a tradition of undergoing uh, a process of you know kind of improving yourself, learning about yourself, learning how to be a good person or a good citizen, um, and uh, it's something that goes back uh, centuries. And, and this is the this is the framework that your typical um, you know Han Chinese person will kind of put it in, or at least a government official will say that too. So the the problem here is that um, there is a ton of propaganda, and uh, the the Chinese internet is just unusable. I mean, if you're um, if you're Han Chinese, even if you're living in a major city like Shanghai, which has uh, close to twenty million people, maybe more, you know, you'd think that it would be like New York City, and you're you know you're cruising on your smartphone and just watching videos about whatever you know whatever you want for the day. But uh, the reality is that the Chinese internet, um, you, d- you just simply can't use it. I mean, I've, I've lived in China. I've been there, been back there many times since then. And even in the Chinese language, it's like you just, uh, you go on any search engine, go on the web. Um, you just can't get ba- basic information about the world. You are enveloped in propaganda. And so this is one of the reasons why a lot of people, um, you know, just, they, they, they just don't totally know what's going on. Sometimes they'll you know, they'll believe that this is a, a war on terror, that these Muslims are, are instigating terror and that we need to have, you know, some kind of major um, operation in the region. That's that's the government propaganda line. But um, it, it's the kind of situation where, like, you can actually see, and I, I've, in my own, um, you know, book writing and travels, my reporting around the world, I do believe that propaganda works. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I think that there's this, almost romantic notion that, um, you know, even if people are bombarded with propaganda, you know, from the time they wake up to the time they sleep, they'll figure out the truth. You know, maybe they'll have a vague understanding of the truth. But uh, in all the places I've been, you know, even in, in places where I can speak the language with local people, I just, I, I've found, I, I have never found evidence that uh, it's easy to get around a propaganda curtain that if you if you live through it uh, if you live through the propaganda you are going to end up believing it and that could be you know it could be the misinformation or it could be the government propaganda it could be anything but the average person does not uh totally grasp what is happening in this region of xinjiang so so you you speak mandarin jeffrey you're you're total you're totally comfortable in country so to speak. Uh, yeah, I, I am a bit. So I used to be, um, I used to be a lot better. My, my Mandarin has faded over the years. I studied as an undergrad, um, but uh, my main language is actually Korean. So I went on and and studied that for uh, for about five years in Korea. So and and part of the reason was because I wanted to be in North Korea. I wanted to be able to understand what people are saying around me. Um, the thing, the thing about North Korea. This is just an aside. You don't want to speak Korean in North Korea because people get a little freaked out. They think you are some kind of spy. So uh, that, that's so part of the reason for learning languages is just that you want to you, you want to know what's going on around you. You want to be able to document it in a, an authoritative way. Got it. Interesting. So um, 
Yeah, no, it's funny because, you know, not that I would do this, but some people would make the sort of, well, I mean, this is kind of what happened on the, uh, on the All In podcast with Jamath. Some people would make the sort of what about us statement, right? That that level of misinformation is rampant on the entire internet. But I think the, the difference you're citing, right, is that this is actually, uh, you know, it's an engineered propaganda bubble that exists around people. And, um, you know, it's one thing to have the sort of chaos and mayhem or whatever the ranked feeds of, of the Western media ecosystem. It's another to actually have, like, the literal party line, like not used metaphorically. This is the Chinese Communist Party line. And uh, again, I, my experience here is relatively limited, but I, in Cuba, it was kind of the same thing. Internet access was very difficult. And so people would often have these very fanciful notions of the outside world because, again, it was just filtered. It was very difficult to understand what was going on. I, I think, yeah, I think people just don't understand what it is to like not be able to look things up and get basically un relatively unbiased information and how over time that just converges on having a worldview that's completely at odds with reality. But, um, but yeah, but I guess, I mean, you cited two examples there. One is China and the other is North Korea. And those are very different countries, right? Obviously North Korea is kind of an economic basket case and China has seen phenomenal growth. So do you think like the, the Chinese at some subconscious level, their, their willingness to accept the propaganda is a partial function of the fact that economically it's doing well, that China by and large, has offered its citizens a level of economic prosperity that they didn't in the past? Oh, yes, that's a huge part of it. Um, but I, I don't think that's the entire story because, uh, you know, even if you speak to people from the older generation, just, you know, say an elderly taxi driver or you know, a, a factory worker somewhere, you might bump into them and, you know, maybe the conversation will go to Mao Zedong, who was a, a mass murderer, you know, who under his watch oversaw um, the deaths of perhaps, uh, you know, 30 million or more people um, during his reign. But um, j just simply because as a, as a product of the propaganda that has enveloped China for so long, um, elderly people will say that Mao Zedong was, say, um, they'll often say 70% good, 30% bad, that, you know, he might be a mass murderer, um, but at least, you know, he was the founding father of the nation and, I, and he had uh, some some good qualities. So it, it, it's as if they're inverting the 70-30. Like you, you think that it would be 70% bad, 30% good or whatever, but that's not the case. Um, so so one of the things that I've questioned myself on is, you know, are these people just saying this because they don't want to run afoul of the authorities because, you know, I am a foreigner and I am going to, you know, get them in trouble if they say the wrong thing. Um, I, I also haven't found evidence of that either because I've sent assistants out who are, uh, you know, who are native speakers who, you know, look, um, look as if they're Han Chinese and, uh, it, it's always the same answers. I mean, it's just, it's not something that people seem to be hiding or, or thinking about it. I think it actually is their firm belief. Interestingly, so you did raise the issue of economic prosperity. Um, that is one of the key reasons why people buy the propaganda the big narrative of China, the Chinese Communist Party, is that they've lifted uh, the nation out of the uh, what they call the 100 years of humiliation, that there was this moment that started uh, about 150 years ago with the Opium Wars. So the subjugation by British naval blockades and a naval assault um, that began, supposedly began the, the decline of the, um, the various Chinese kingdoms of the time you know, into this decrepit state that justified the rise of communism. Um, that narrative is actually false. That's something that I've even heard 
you know, Americans kind of repeat after they've been to China. It's just, it's not something that is true, but it's something that plays into propaganda. Um, And then one other, um, you know, one other interesting thing I've always noted. So just going to North Korea, like this little, I guess you could call it like a little pimple next to this giant Chinese landmass. Even people there, they, they buy the Chinese, uh, the Chinese dream, so to speak. And what the, what North Koreans will say is that, uh, you know, China is the number one most prosperous nation in the world, and North Korea is number two. They never say North Korea is number one. They say that China is our big brother and China will protect us, and the prosperity that has come to China will inevitably creep into North Korea, which is far more isolated and far more backwards. So I think that China, you know, as a nation, has... Uh, just enormous sway around the world among all kinds of countries. It's not just North Korea, but I mean, I've been to a lot of places where China is the favored nation and often for, you know, for good economic reasons, they do, you know, get pretty good packages. If you're a a poor government and you need a solution quickly, the the Chinese will be there supposedly helping you out. So it does look favorable. Um, And this is sort of, so, so my point is that this is the world order that, is emerging now. I mean, we are starting to live in a pair of bubbles where um, there is one trade and technological center that is aligned with China, and that's obviously North Korea, but many other places too, uh, parts of Central Asia, Africa, South America, and then there are uh, the Western states um, and, you know, Japan and South Korea, which tend to be more developed. We're, We're entering this interesting kind of a pseudo Cold War in which we will have two spheres of technological influence and there will be a time when you have to choose one or the other say you know you're a tourist traveling through a chinese aligned techno you know technological state um you know you will have to turn off your smartphone there maybe leave it at home take a burner phone you don't want to get spied on you don't want you don't want to get hacked this is the world that i've been documenting in my own travels around kind of the the Asian region and and the parts, the, you know, the Middle East and the areas that surround China. Right. So, so you mentioned the outside world and the world going to sort of a multipolar one, which just to get back to the Chamath issue, and I'm, you know, I'm not usually a big gossip hound when it comes to these things, but I, I, I do think it's interesting and it touches on what you're mentioning, which is Chinese influence abroad. Right. And again, to reiterate, um, what Chamath said, and I'm obviously paraphrasing very quickly, is that he basically just didn't care about the Uyghur thing, right? And then again, the reaction was super negative. And, you know, I think thinking about it more, you know, the reason for the the negative reaction, obviously, one is it comes off as callous and indifferent to what, you know, is a moral horror, as you describe in your book. But I think part of the reason for the horror, you know, is part of the motivation behind most social taboos, right? Taboos paper over... What are, what are in fact natural inclinations, right? That we condemn all the more strongly precisely because the default attitude would be to go ahead and do that, <laughs> right? And I think p- part of the rejection of, of, of Chamath's statement is that I, I think people intuited that in fact, for much of like global capitalism, that, that's exactly the attitude, right? It's below their line. They actually don't care, right? At least not enough to make the economic music stop. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, if you've had any thoughts on that, sort of the meta question of the Chinese impact on the economy more broadly. 
um, you know, again, particularly in a world in which some politicians, you know, in, more right than left, which is interesting, are often calling for kind of cutting the cord with with the Chinese economy. Have have you thought about that or, or written about that at all, Jeff? Of course, that's what I've been working on. Um, so I, I was uh, I, I, I worked for a year at the the U.S. representatives um, at the Foreign Affairs Committee for the past year. I was a outside advisor brought in to talk about these exact issues. Um, so, uh, so what I'm saying now is not the, it's not the view of the House of Representatives or any, you know, member or committee there. This is my own personal research and my own view. Um, we live in an age in which, uh, global capital, uh, has made the devil's bargain. Um, the devil's bargain is that China is going to keep growing, that there's not much of a, an alternative in their eyes but the um the the problem is that if you want to work with china you have to go along with china and this is one of the reasons why tesla uh you know opens a a dealership in the xinjiang uh, region even though there's you know very little market there i mean you're you're just not it, it's it's a distant frontier there there aren't many people who are going to buy teslas they might sell like four teslas out there but by not doing business in Xinjiang and, you know, by avoiding this topic uh, of the Uyghurs, the um, global capitalists are, this is the only way that they can actually do business in China. If you, if you don't do business in Xinjiang, then you are, uh, you are the, you are not following the Chinese Communist Party line. You are essentially implicitly admitting um, that the you know the foreign critics of China are correct. That is the line of thinking that goes on here, uh, and that is one of the big threats to the um, I, you know I would say the the global economic order. We're we're entering this very strange phase in which two countries are divorcing themselves into separate economic, uh, tra- technological, and trade based spheres. Uh, and yet global capital, um, at least as it's based in New York and Wall Street and Silicon Valley, is increasingly uh, making decisions to continue moving into China you know, against, the, against the grain of their own governments and their own um, nation state. Um, so what does that mean? That's something that I'm still thinking about, and that's something that uh, concerns me. Um, I think that there, like, I think it's a huge risk. I think that one of the big problems um, is that the the Chinese state is extremely opaque. Um, we actually don't know a lot about China. Uh, we 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 don't know if its GDP numbers are even correct. Uh, we don't know how many people have a high school education there. Um, there are so many, you know, statistics that come out that are just very suspect and questionable. And this is based on the you know the the like the the first hand visitations of you know people who actually go out there who go to places that are not in Beijing you know and not Shanghai you actually go see the country uh, it's a very poor place it's um it's a place where the average person has a very hard time it is not this economic you know, the spectacular miracle uh, entirely that people make it out to be it is for certain people um, but it is a country that suffers from deep deep structural problems um, that includes a very high level of sovereign debt um, that includes, uh, uh, you know, the, the, you could say the, the, the overextension of its military power. I mean, there's a lot that can go wrong here, but we don't even know what the truth is. 
because it's an authoritarian state and it is one of the most successful secretive states in the world. Um, so, you know, my big concern is that the, uh, you know, global capital is continuing to go into China, but the, si- the signals they're getting are not correct. Um, I'm concerned that there could be some kind of crash in the future that will ripple out of China that will capture uh, much of the world and maybe bring down some of these, you know, American or European titans. Uh, it could happen. That's a more distant scenario. But, you know, I, I'm not ruling that out because I, I just think they're very they're being very short termist and brash in the way that they make decisions. Yeah, I mean, that's a question that I've always <clears throat> had, you know, all these doomers going on about China it reminds me a lot about the um, a similar amount of, um, you know, doom prophesized um, in the 90s around um, around Japan, um, a lot of which didn't pan out for a bunch of reasons. So, um, you know, I've often had that question, like how, how well is the Chinese economy actually doing? If you look at some outside, I mean, obviously their numbers are cooked, but even if you look at success metrics like their academic publication records, it seems very positive. And then, you know, their COVID vaccine doesn't work, for example, <laughs> which it doesn't, right? And in fact, Chile, who made the mistake of uh, very successfully vaccinating all their citizens with the Sinovac vaccine had to, or is now going and revaccinating with a non-Chinese vaccine. And so somehow it seems that when the rubber hits the road, that picture seems very different. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, it's, it sounds like you, you sound a little skeptical of the sort of doomer claim that the, the future is Chinese and that's the end of it. I, I am very skeptical. Uh, we, so there are many studies that suggest that when it comes to AI research in particular, um, China certainly has a strong, uh, it has the basics down. It has the people who can, you know, who can certainly build a basic infrastructure. Um, but uh, I, I have not found any evidence that, you know, it's, it's uh, surpassed the U.S. in any way. Um, I, I think that that's, there's a threat that it could, but um, I just can't find, you know, looking, I've, I've looked everywhere and I've, I've been everywhere in the country um, and it's, it you know, a lot of these success stories that get out into Bloomberg Business Week and the mainstream media, um, they're cooked up. They're, you know, they're cooked up. And, you know, I, I don't want to accuse the writers. Like, I, I don't think they're pandering to access or, or trying to get the interview in exchange for saying good things or something like that. But I, I just think that, you know, a lot of people uh, just don't have the actual you know, like you just can't get the inside story of the country. You cannot get inside the Communist Party or the bureaucracies of this massive authoritarian state and truly figure out what's going on. So, um, you know, I, I think that the the collapse, you know, so I, I don't think that China is going to collapse anytime soon. But if it were to fall apart and, and you know, transition to a new government, um, it would probably be very similar to the Soviet Union um, in the sense that, you know, we were scared of it in the 50s. We were scared of it when the threats were there. But um, we're, I think we're going to look back on it and say, you know, well, it was a paper tiger in so many respects. Like that, that's, uh, you know, that big super fancy weapon that so right now it's hypersonic missiles that they're talking about. Uh, you know, there's a lot of basic science around hypersonic missiles uh, that don't quite even uh, add up. I mean, like we could use ballistic, the old technology, ballistic missiles, uh, and it would actually be a better choice for a lot of what these these major superpowers are doing. And this is just one example of a tech where, you know, like if if you were to pull the veil away and to look at what China 
is actually doing, I think there's a strong chance um, that it would turn out to be a house of cards that it's maybe it's somewhat advanced, but it's not nearly as far along as they claim to be. Well, I mean, yeah, when it comes to military technology, the proof is obviously in the pudding in the form of actual war, right? I mean, those are the sort of three inarguable realities these days, war, elections, and the markets. Um, so, I mean, I, I think what, so, I, you know, I always try to pull back and ask, like, what's, what's the real meta question that's being debated when it comes to the China thing? And it seems to me, you know, one of the, one of the sort of pretensions of sort of post-World War II liberal democratic Western thought, right? And we've been sort of carrying this momentum since the collapse of the Soviet Union is that, you know, at the end of the day, this weird merging of capitalism with liberalism that we take as like almost the law of the universe in the West. And of course it's not because you can, you can definitely have capitalism without liberalism, right? Part of the argument for that is like, well, look, look at the lifestyles that we've, we've created for most people, right? At the end of the day, Maybe the Soviets beat us to the punch with Sputnik, and maybe the rocket technology is pretty good, but you know their movies suck. They can't make blue jeans, and you know nobody wants to. You know they don't have a global fast food chain or whatever, right? But yet, you know, in the case of China, that's not quite true, right? They are producing world-class technologies, right? They they have an export-driven economy, right? Like, you know, much of what we consume is Chinese-made in a way that it was never the case in the Soviet Union. And so somehow that boast that materially, at least, if nothing else, you know, liberal democracy will win. And I think that's why China presents such a deep ideological existential threat. The thought that in some sense, right, like, again, I, I don't buy this, but you, I've, I've, I've seen the question raised in, like, you know, Silicon Valley private groups that, like, look at, look at Shanghai, look at the disaster that is San Francisco. Which would you rather have? Well, if you held it to a vote, you might be surprised that a shockingly high number of people would actually opt into, you know, Shanghai rather than living what is kind of the shit show of San Francisco, right? So I, at least, I don't know if you agree, but to, to me, in some sense, that, that's the challenge that, the, that China presents to the Western mindset. The thought that, in fact, you can't have material growth, growth and technological sophistication without having to deal with elections. And that's kind of a challenge that the West didn't even see during the Cold War. Man, we keep losing you, Jeff. I'm not quite sure why. I, I just invited you up again. Yeah, I, I don't know what, what that was. Maybe I fat-fingered that one. Um, I don't think that was you. So, yes, the, um, the, the big... So this is why China is uh, making so many people just go crazy with uh, questions about, you know, is China going to overtake the U.S.? Is it going to, you know, reshape the world? And it comes down to the question of can um, an authoritarian model that's that's fundamental to capitalism, to the economic system as well, um, can it defeat and overtake the the post-World War II or at least the neoliberal order since the 1980s? Um, so there's lots to unpack there. I mean, you know, one of the things is that uh, pre-World War II and even post-World War II, a lot of governments uh, embraced a similar model to China. The first one was uh, Meiji Japan, um, which, you know, this is very historical and going far back, but it was, you know, this was the the model that allowed Japan to emerge as a major uh, power, you know, in the lead up to World War II that challenged the, uh, the Western-led order at a time when America was, you know, still emerging as a global power. Um, but... 
you know, coming to more recent times. So the entire history of East Asia, uh, Northeast Asia, so Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and now China, and also Vietnam, uh, since the since 1945, um, has been exactly this. It has been a story of governments uh, figuring out that they don't really need a real democracy to undergird, um, you know, a, a liberal market of uh, of any kind that that you know they can, you know, that they they can use it. They they can command the economy. It's it's um, so in economics, it's called new institutional economics. It's there's an entire field based upon it. The first government that did this successfully post World War Two was Japan, which had been destroyed in World War Two. They had, you know, they had tinkered with the system. They had some American imports to, to help make it happen. And, and they were sort of the first um, to rise and to attempt to overtake American power in the 1980s. The next one was South Korea, which, uh, which adapted and imitated um, about 90% of the Japanese model and, and turned that into a power, you know, of their own. Uh, the next one was China, which is happening now. And then the next one after China has been Vietnam, which is similar to all the above countries, but is, is behind China. They're still trying to, um, you know, they, they have been recovering from the, the Vietnam War and some of the, you know, some of the destruction that happened there and trying to build their own self-sustaining technological export driven economy. So here's the thing. Um, Japan, wildly successful. South Korea, wildly successful. Uh, these are both resource-bearing nations that did not. Uh, they, they they both had either authoritarian regimes or kind of quasi, a quasi-democratic regime. In the case of Japan, um, you know that, that it's been one party in power for almost all of the past seventy years in Japan, uh, despite it being a democracy on paper. And this model has worked uh, brilliantly because it is, you know, it is one nation coming together under one government. Uh, and making the entire, so constructing the entire supply chain from the semiconductors and the components of the semiconductors all the way to the end products, the, you know, the, the automobiles, the, the phones, whatever it might be, and exporting it to Western markets in particular. So the big question now with China is, can China accomplish that with many of the same circumstances as Japan and South Korea with a similar, uh, you know, history uh, similar culture, um, social structures, uh, you know, a lot that really it does have in common, but at the same time, some areas that are quite different because, um, you know, those two governments, they were not communist governments. You know, one of the things about Japan and South Korea is that they, and this is getting very policy, you know, focused and wonkish even, but they, they, re- they redistributed land to small time entrepreneurs and farmers you know, in an attempt to fire up the the state capitalist economy, that the government, the states there knew that they could not do it themselves. Whereas in China, the Communist Party thinks that it can do it themselves. I mean, it's it's the ultimate top down order. And if anyone gets too out of hand, um, say Alibaba, the major you know Amazon like uh, online store there, they'll they'll disappear and arrest the the CEOs and the the executives of that company to keep them in line. So that's the big question we're facing now. Like, can China actually do what the powers that came before it uh, did? Can they do it successfully? Um, I don't think that they will in the end. I think that they're going to put up a huge fight. I think that, you know, it could get bloody. I I think that there is a likelihood of some kind of armed conflict over Taiwan, um, maybe in the next decade or two decades. It's hard to tell at this point. 
but I, I don't, you know, from my own explorations of China and, and my own time just going, I mean, I've been to so many, almost every province in China. I, I just don't think that the state and the economy um, has the power to over to, to fully overtake, uh, you know, a modern uh, Western democracy. I think that we should be thankful for what we have. And going back to your point on, you know, like San Francisco versus Shanghai, like, yeah, San Francisco, total shit show. Uh, yeah, I would not want to live there. Um, but, you know, I mean, take any other city. We can make it, uh, you know, you're you're in uh, Nevada. You know, I'll, I'll make it like Texas somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd rather live in any of these places than Shanghai. One of the things about living in Shanghai is that, you know, as a foreign tech investor, uh, you'll be having the time of your life there. You'll be partying. There will be lots of, you know, people who want to hang around you you'll never actually bump up into the surveillance state directly. Like you're never going to be in a situation where it's clear that you are being repressed and watched and, you know, your future could be on the line or the future of your company that, you know, your, your IP is being lifted. But the reality is that that's happening behind the scenes. If you are um, some kind of foreign investor living in Shanghai, it's extremely risky. Uh, And one of my reasons for writing this book was to lift that veil and to show that, you know, there is an underbelly, there's, there's something darker and deeper that's going on around the world. It's not just in China, but there are people who are suffering and they're suffering when these technologies that can be used for enormous good are being put in the hands of uh, just deeply, um, just, you know, deeply troubled and, you know, just callous authoritarians who really only care about power for themselves in the end. They're willing to commit a genocide and put 1.8 million people, about a tenth of the minority population, into concentration camps because they want to seize total power. Like, that's not just going to stop with that minority. It's not going to, you know, this is not just about the Uyghurs and it's not about Muslim minority groups in China. This kind of thing, it consumes itself and it goes to everyone. And what they're doing in Xinjiang is spreading. It's spreading around China and it's spreading in other parts of the world. And it's becoming the modern 21st century mode of authoritarianism. So that, that's what the book is about. You know, it's funny, if, if we had Balaji Srinivasan on here, we'd probably have this screaming debate that would last six hours. So it's, it's probably good we don't. But at some point, I would love to get both of you in a room just to uh, just talk about that. Um, I, you know, as a final comment on that, Jeff, you know, it's funny, one of the... <laughs> It's it's intriguing. Again, there's all the doom and gloom about China, but then the the reality you describe. And then I think of a random data point like Vancouver, British Columbia, which it's a gorgeous city, right? For those who haven't been there, but there's like this major real estate crunch because basically every upper class Chinese person uses it as their like bolt hole, right? Like they're clearly pan- planning for either themselves fleeing or some sort of collapse or something. But it's weird. Like you don't see American elites you know, buying bolt hole properties that they never live in, in some other random country as a hedge to their own situation going south or the country going south. And so I, I, maybe I'm overreading into it, but it does seem like a tell that if Chinese elites themselves don't fundamentally believe in their own state and they're kind of hedging against it, I don't know, maybe they know something that, that we don't. The Chinese government uh, recognizes this as a problem and they've been working hard to uh, to implement what are called capital controls, so meaning that they want to they want to stop money from getting out of the country. Um, this has been a huge problem, you know, for them for decades. It's not a new problem. So even in China, you know, it's so 
they have a term there. So like if you're sitting in a coffee shop with someone and they say they've got a BVI, uh, BVI is British Virgin Islands. And it means that they're, they've made it enough, they're successful and they're affluent enough to open up their own little shell company in the British Virgin Islands. And that's where they're sending their, their cash to get it out of the country because they don't trust the currency. They don't trust the, the government. Um, Vancouver is one of the major destinations for, you know, these, these sort of laundered property investments to the point where if you're a regular resident of Vancouver, you're priced out of, out of, out of a lot of the, the market there because there's so much, there's so much hot Chinese money coming in, but the money doesn't have anywhere to go because it's just, people need to stash their money. It's like their piggy bank. So they just buy, you know, buy an apartment, um, you know, jam up the prices as high as you can get. Um, so within, Within like money laundering, there, there's a whole uh, law enforcement field that's been looking at this particular problem, like kind of global law enforcement, and they actually call it the Vancouver model. Um, it is a it's a slush of money that uh, illicitly traverses the globe. It starts uh, usually in Macau with the casinos. There's money that's laundered there, and that money goes to Vancouver. Uh, and it's invested in properties, and then that money, as it's sold, goes to the British Virgin Islands, where it's put in, in shell companies. Um, and I've done a lot of deep diving into these shell companies. Uh, it really is just a, it's a tremendous business, and a lot of people are making a fortune helping these Chinese elites get their money out. But the money goes back to Macau after that. It's like a big circle of money that's trying to evade the Chinese Communist Party. So this is something that the U.S. has sounded the alarm on. Europe has... Um, but interestingly, America and China are aligned on this one, that they both want to stop all this dirty, laundered Chinese money from, you know, moving around the world. Like the Chinese Communist Party is fully aware of it and they, they don't like it either. You know, it's funny. I've often said there's there's two types of countries in the world, those with immigration policies and those with emigration policies <laughs> and it um, or with capital controls. And uh, it seems China's still in the latter bucket. Um, interesting. Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, you know, we often do a Q&A at the end because often, not always, but people will have questions. I'm curious, are you, are you up for some questions or does anyone in the audience actually want to ask uh, Jeff some questions? I'm happy to answer. I think, I'm not quite sure how to, how to do it actually, which is embarrassing, but somewhere in there, here we go. Okay, Sahil. All right, let me um, take the next caller. There we go. Hello, Sahil. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, super fascinating, especially because so much of Twitter is kind of pro-China, weirdly, these days. But uh, I'm curious, why Vancouver? Like, why is that the the hotbed for buying real estate, you know, when there's a lot of different options? So a lot of it has to do with the Canadian visas. Um, so in Canada, it's way easier to get an investment visa than it is in other places, in America in particular. Um, and uh, also Canada has weaker uh, capital controls. Um, so this is now being fixed. I, I'm, I, I actually know a Canadian diplomat, a senior diplomat, who's been working on these, these China, you know, these financial issues. Um, and they are, they are moving to, to sew up a lot of the, you know, a lot of the money that's been going in and out. So I don't know how long it's going to be that this lasts. It could be, you know, that maybe, maybe people figure out they've got to go somewhere else, but you know, the, the, the global uh, money laundering regime, it's surprisingly relaxed. Like if you're a, a professional money launderer and you want to get dirty Chinese money out of the country, um, there are a lot of options. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if some real estate bubble 
pops up somewhere else and it's like propped up by these these Chinese barons who just want to, you know, they just don't trust the Communist Party. Cool. Well, thanks. That's a good question. And and also, by the way, Vancouver is just very nice. <laughs> I used to live up in the Northwest in the San Juan Islands, which is on the American side, but I'd, I'd occasionally dip into the Canadian side and go to Vancouver. And it's, it's very pleasant. I mean, superficially, at least it feels like San Francisco, but with like all the problems fixed. Of course, in reality, it's not, it's, it's not quite that, but, um, but, but it is a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous city. Um, okay. Let's take the, the next caller, uh, who is Siddhartha. Hey guys, uh, thanks for the great conversation. Uh, Jeffrey, I wanted to maybe get your, your take on something Antonio mentioned briefly uh, early in the conversation, which was about um, uh, Erdogan's uh, collaboration with China, which uh, I guess like on the face of it is maybe a bit surprising. One, because of you know, the, the NATO, uh, uh, the NATO uh, status of, of Turkey, too, because of the sort of ethno-linguistic relationship between the Turkish people and, uh, and the Uyghurs. And, uh, and three, because Erdogan himself is sort of like a, you know, an, an Islamist, uh, maybe, maybe a sort of a moderate Islamist to some degree, but in defiance of the sort of founding creed of, uh, of, uh, Ataturk's Turkey. And, uh, and, and he has been sort of like doing quite a bit of, uh, you know, regional muscling, um, in, in a sort of like pro, uh, pro sort of religious affinity direction. So, uh, curious about that. Yes, so um, the Uyghur people, they do have a shared Turkic uh, lineage with the people of Turkey. Um, and Erdogan, you know, one of his big, uh, since coming to power, his big push has been to um, to try to unite a lot of the, the Middle East and the Islamic world, but particularly the Sunni uh, nations and peoples under the, you could say, the Turkic flag or the some people say neo-Ottoman, speaking about the old Ottoman Empire. Um, I'm personally not sure how much that figures into his thinking, but it is something that people do talk about. Um, so the situation with Turkey now is that it's stuck in a pretty tough position because the lira, the currency, has collapsed um, just beyond anything that anyone, I think, really anticipated, in large part due to Erdogan's own policies. He's not exactly a master uh, economic administrator, but he is good at whipping up the the religious anger of his people, um, and and you know kind of turning it outwards and and getting angry at other countries. So he's he's in this position now where the so Turkey is home to most of the Uyghur refugees in the world from China. Um, if he were to deport them, he would be politically potentially in a lot of trouble because the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Sunni uh, groups, the various groups that live in Turkey, including the Turkish people themselves, would be, uh, they, would, they would just see it as an abomination against, you know, like, why are, why are you turning against, you know, a fellow, uh, a, a fellow Turkic group that is, you know, like our, our fellow bloodline, our fellow, you know, like, like our lineage that goes back to all these empires. Why are you turning on these people and sending them back to China? Um, these people, like these these Han Chinese who don't care about them, who aren't connected to them, who are just going to torture them and put them in prison, uh, it actually would damage Erdogan's standing. But the other problem now is that with the currency so weak, 
you know, Erdogan, he needs money. He needs injections of foreign cash. He needs, um, you know, just infrastructure projects that can pump up industry, get it moving again. The, the, so a lot of the Turkish economy, uh, it has booms like 10 years ago, but that was mostly based on construction. Uh, and construction is, it's a total hot air industry in any developing country in which people are just putting their, their dirty money. It's not going to continue forever. Uh, and so he's in a position now where he's got to choose. It's like, do I take Chinese money or do I, you know, and send the Uyghurs back or do I try to stand strong and independent? There's also the option of Russia right now. I mean, Turkey is a NATO member, but Turkey is the one uh, NATO country that has done a lot to oppose or at least kind of go against the NATO grain. So like, for example, a couple of years ago, it's um, uh, Turkey bought uh, U.S. NATO fighter jets, but then bought a Russian uh, anti-missile radar system, uh, you know, that that's designed to shoot down those exact jets. Um, so that's just to give you an idea of like the division that Turkey has now where it's it's trapped between all these big powers. It's NATO versus Russia versus China. And, and Erdogan is just trying to figure out what exactly you know, he is going to do. So I, so uh, to, to sum that up, like it, it's, it's hard, it's, it's hard to tell right now, but there is actually a chance um, that he might end up deporting the Uyghurs back to China and just forming a Chinese alliance because he needs Chinese money like everyone else. He, so China has given money to Egypt, to Pakistan, uh, to Iran, to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE and uh, Morocco, all these uh, majority Muslim countries have ended up siding with China and deporting the Uyghur people who are Muslim, um, which is a terrible travesty. It's just, it's so ironic that uh, the countries that do end up protecting the Uyghurs are secular Western democracies uh, and not, um, you know, Muslim majority nations, you know, which, which should be taking up the mantle and doing what they can. And Turkey might be the last domino to fall. Like everyone else has fallen to Chinese money, but Turkey is the one that's still holding out. And there's there's some chance that they will just deport the Uyghurs in exchange for some kind of special Chinese deal to save the economy. Yeah, I've I've always wondered like why why don't I kind of take their side? But I, I I guess per you they're they're just getting bought off and that's the end of it. And China can actually do that. Um, it's interesting. Okay, we've got actually a number of people asking questions, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna cycle through them. We've got Steve on next. Welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks, guys. Fascinating conversation. I thought the uh, 70-30 stat with the, the population and what they thought of Mao is uh, very, very interesting, uh, given what we know about him at this point. But um, I did want to know, and I didn't hear it brought up, but where do you think India comes into play, um, specifically when it comes to your I would say somewhat bearish view on China in terms of the paper tiger like um, you had mentioned the collapse, but if you could just expand on that and, and kind of bring India in the context of, you know, maybe the next you know, 20, 30, 40 years, um, given the population size and kind of the, you know, uh, rise that they are foreseen to be had um, in the near future, that'd be helpful. Uh, so compared to China, um, so even though, yeah, you are right, uh, you know, I, I don't think that China is going to overtake the West anytime soon, but I also think that India is far, far behind of China too. Um, I, I think that the the battle between China and India is one that was settled, that I'm saying the, the economic battle was settled 
uh, many years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And it became clear that India wasn't going to be able to keep up with China because of a number of deep seated problems. And, you know, part of that, there's just there's so much government bureaucracy there. Um, it's, it's a decentralized uh, federation, essentially. Um, you know, it's not a unified party state like China that can just execute orders and get things, you know, just, just send it, send down the order, get it done. Um, there, there are so many, you know, in India, there are problems with ethnic divisions, um, you know, it's just battles raging between various Hindu and, and, and Islamic sects. Um, I, I mean, there, there really is just, you know, massive urban poverty. Um, there is a lot that exists in India now that, uh, China has moved ahead of, or at least taken care of. Um, and I, I just don't think India is going to be able to overtake China, um, at the stage. I, th- I think that that battle is settled, but, um, one way to think about India, I mean, if you're, so, you know, now we're talking geopolitics and, you know, kind of global, um, you know, the, the global chessboard, uh, it's in India's interest to ultimately side uh, with the West. Um, and I think, you know, we're already seeing that there's this, like, if you look at Asia in particular, there's this really kind of unusual and ironic alignment that's happening um, between, you know, d- different uh, kind of ch- countries that are opposed to China's rise or opposed to China's aggression. And it is, it's the U.S., interestingly aligned with Vietnam, a former war foe, uh, aligned with India. Uh, and those are one of the, th- those are like the three major kind of geostrategic centers. It's, it's as if, you know, like India, actually India in the cold war was not always aligned with the U S it was, it was more aligned with the Soviet union, but there's this, there's this really interesting realignment happening now in which I think India is going to emerge as like one of the major, centers of protecting against the Chinese expansion. If China does try to expand westward as it has been, um, India is going to be the bulwark that's going to be, you know, the major land-based power that's going to stop them. Uh, And China is also very aligned with Pakistan now. And then also if China starts to, you know, if if, with the South China Sea, what's going on, so so south of China now, um, China has been aggressively moving into, into the South China Sea and trying to disrupt, uh, you know, shipping routes there. And interestingly, Vietnam has emerged, you know, as one of the major protectors of that region because there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment there and the government there does not want to be seen as bowing to China. So like we're seeing, we're, we're living in interesting times because, you know, these alliances that are starting to form, you know, if we, if we were all sitting in this room 20 years ago, I, I just don't think anyone would anticipate it. And no one would really anticipate just how powerful China has become. Um, you know, I think a lot of people 20 years ago predicted that China would simply become, you know, another liberalish democracy, that it would start to see the, uh, the problems with, it, with its ways and that free trade would open it up and it would be a softer power. It would be a friendlier power. Um, but we're seeing quite the opposite. And as a result of that, there are significant realignments happening worldwide that, you know, when it comes to our area, technology and business, uh, like it's it's going to really just change the game. I mean, it, it's not clear yet how totally, um, but like, you know, this whole idea of, of doing business with China and investing with China, those days are already ending uh, with a few exceptions. And we're going to be moving to, to other places very soon.
Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, let's have uh, Yasarian next. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Um, a really interesting discussion. I missed the first part of it, so I don't know uh, if you already discussed this, and I apologize if so. Um, but a little bit pivoting off, Jeffrey, what you were just talking about in terms of sort of the West having to realign its relationship with China in light of the fact that, you know, what we were sold in the 90s was trade with China, free trade with China equals China liberalizing. And exactly as you said, it hasn't worked out that way. But what, you know, instead of pivoting towards, all right, we need to recalibrate, it seems like we're just doubling down. And that was really what struck me about, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to commit a microaggression by mispronouncing his name, but the, the billionaire Chamath his comments about the Uyghurs, I commend him for his honesty, but what really struck me about it, what really dismayed me about it is the sort of like just naked cynicism of it, right? And here you have someone who, from what I understand, is a billionaire and, you know, he's not content with being a multi-hundred millionaire and maybe, you know, not doing as much business or any business with China as he's, you know, when the issue comes up, he flips it around and he points the finger at, at you know, the United States. Oh, you know, you think we're so great. Look at all the people that we have in prison, et cetera, et cetera. And I find that so cynical. And it's like if the American elites, both the cultural and the financial elites, aren't willing to stand up for American slash Western values, however you want to read or code that, then, you know, honestly, like if we're going to have a confrontation with China, what, you know, what chance do we have? It seems like Chinese illiberalism is coming to America rather than American liberalism coming to China. Anyway, that's more of a rant than a question. I apologize. Um, no, I, I think that's great. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, one of the one of the precedents that um, you might want to look at is how American businesses and, and Hollywood studios, in particular, reacted to the rise of Hitler. Uh, you know, and I, 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 I'm, I'm always very careful with Hitler comparisons. I know it's it's unfair to you know smear people and say, oh, oh you're just Hitler, you're you're evil. Um, but the, the historical parallel is very pertinent here because I, I think that we tend to forget today what a popular, you know, popular among very large circles in America, the idea of fascism was in the 20s and early 30s, um, not just in America, but in parts of the West, in, in England, um, you know, fascism was seen uh, as the future and it was even embraced, um, for example, just to give one example um, by former suffragettes who had won the right to vote in England, um, some of them d decided that fascism was going to be the face of modernity, that it would be the, the 20th century, uh, and it would be the, the ideology that would dominate all others. And so they decided to, um, to you know, to join fascist parties. Uh, and, you know, this, this is the, so, you know, going forward, so if we go to like the early 30s, Hollywood studios, uh, were competing with Germany as the other uh, major filmmaking uh, country, and they they ended up censoring anything bad about the Nazis. Uh, and you know, if you go back to, you know, go back to the the film archives, uh, you know, go back to old films. And I'm not talking so much about the classics. So there there were directors like Fritz Lang, who you know came from Germany, and he was deeply critical of the Nazi regime but when you go to like regular american filmmakers the the regular everyday films that you know we all forget today um they were they were puppeting nazi propaganda they they just they thought that germany uh this national socialist state um had found the solution to the woes that afflict 
the world that we need to, you know, we need to embrace this ideology because it's going to uh, take people out of poverty and it's state-led and it, it's, it's just a wonderful, uh, you know, idea that's going to solve so many of our problems. Uh, the only real, I, I would say the, the, the first film that actually opposed the Nazis and called them out on this um, was Charlie Chaplin, uh, who himself, you know, was deeply critical of, of authoritarian regimes. And uh, it was uh, the, the great dictator. It was, you know, it was his satire, but the satire proved it was, it was his first, uh, you know, non-silent film. He, he actually talked in it and it was like a brilliant satire because he pokes fun at everything that was going on, but did it in such an effective way that his, the truth of the film was more true than what was actually going on in the world at the time. Um, so, you know, my point is that, like, if you go back and look at authoritarian regimes, uh, the West has almost always started out on the side of what these guys are doing. And they've done it either for the interests of money or market access, or they just don't want to anger people. They want to be politically correct for the times they live in. Um, but that is a consistent pattern um, that has never really let up in American history. Uh, and, you know, to draw another parallel, we're, we're coming up now with the Chinese Olympics, you know, and uh, there there is the, you know, the Olympics that happened in Nazi Germany. Many of the sponsors of the Olympics in China right now, a government that is committing a genocide, according to the declarations of numerous parliaments around the world. Um, these sponsors are shutting out uh, activists. They've just they've they've ghosted them and they've, they've gone silent on any questions about human rights. Um, there's a, a tennis player who has disappeared in China, um, and many of the the major global sporting bodies are appeasing the Chinese line and, and saying, including the the International Olympics Committee, they're saying that she's fine, that they've talked to her, that everything's okay, we shouldn't worry about it. Um, so, in many ways, you know, we we are reliving uh, this pattern that keeps coming up, in which um, we we just can't trust unrestrained capital to you know, to naturally guide the invisible hand in the interests of, uh, you know, democratic governance and, you know, the, 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 the well-being of the people, um, you know, capital operates in its own interests. Uh, and, you know, in this case, capital, global capital has decided that uh, China is uh, the way to go, that China is going to keep growing and that it's a better bet to, to, to keep investing in China um, and then maybe to rewrite the narrative later in its favor uh, you know, if if China were to start declining or if the situation turns around, you can always hire a bunch of lawyers and PR people, um, you know, to try to, to, to help your image. But the, the priority is making money now. And that is where I think the incentives are, are set up for a lot of these global capital firms. Uh, to Jeffrey, it, it seems... Um... Godwin's law applies to call-in shows as well. <laughs> Sorry, just the the, the the dimension of the of the Nazis. But I think it's a very apt. I think it's a very apt one. Um, you know, it's funny. So much of World War II was, you know, retrospectively rewritten the history of it. And part of that is the part of that is the sort of the political Overton window has narrowed to what we consider modern liberalism, right? And even a narrower form of that, which is the, the sort of current woke version of it. But as you point out, if you actually go back and read the primary sources, which I think is always better to do in the 30s, you realize how much actual admiration there was, not just for communism, but also for fascism in the West, 
right? I mean, you could look up photos of Nazi rallies held in Madison Square Garden full of tens of thousands of people. And um, at the time, IBM, for example, had a thriving business with Nazi Germany, actually supplied them with computers. And, you know, the, the cause that FDR had to make for going to war with, with Germany was, was a hard one that actually took several months of uh, convincing. If anything, Japanese kind of did FDR favor and convincing that the Axis powers actually were a serious, unignorable threat. But in any case, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, going back to that all-in podcast thing, both Chamath's comment, and I think, I haven't listened to the whole thing, so I don't want to quote it authoritatively, but I believe Friedberg, one of the co-hosts, also kind of what about it and kind of implied that the U.S. is as bad as China. And yeah, the whole thing just left a terrible, a terrible taste in my mouth. Um, but again, I think that's, that's what actually drove that knee-jerk reaction against it, precisely because there's this nagging suspicion that, in fact, Chamath is just talking about what is the default view for so much of the of the global capitalist class. Okay, we've gone way over time. Let me, thank you, Yasserian, let me get Wynn up here um, and make him the next caller and have him ask this question. Wynn, welcome. Yeah, quick question. Thanks so much. Um, if you could identify what you believe is the greatest threat to President Xi's you know, you know, um, presence, what would that be? Uh, thanks. So the greatest threat, just to clarify, to his uh, his presidency or his his leadership post. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good question. Uh, so okay, so here's the thing about uh, Chinese politics that I, I think a lot of us outsiders don't always fully grasp. It's that you know, we have our own rational systems and we place our own decision-making processes through those systems. So, you know, when our president does something, maybe we disagree with it, but, you know, ultimately the, you know, the, the narrative of how that president got there, you know, we can always kind of rationalize it and make sense of it. Um, when it comes to China and all these authoritarian regimes, they live in their own rational systems that they've developed through their own historical experience uh, and this this system exists outside of anything that would make sense to the average uh, Western observer. Uh, I, I I just don't think it's fair to apply you know American logic to what China does because that's certainly not how the Communist Party sees it. They're not sitting around you know kind of uh, twiddling their thumbs and, and thinking you know in the way that American or European leaders would be processing things. Um, and so I I think the the big uh, so the big threat that stems from this is that Xi Jinping, ironically, is faced with a, an extremely and growingly nationalistic populace. Um, this is uh, you know the the genie that he has unleashed through his own policies. It was also building up for a while, but it, it was this um, you know this this European this old European style you know nationalism from say the nineteenth century. Uh, you know, that that started uh, kind of getting getting unleashed as as the power grew, as the nation grew, as as its wealth was being built up more and more. Um, and this started happening in China. People were just more proud to be Chinese. They, they saw what the government was doing and they saw the, the 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 enormous success out of anyone's you know wildest dreams and, and just how people were buying these fancy cars. And they became very proud um, to be from China to an irrational what we what what we would consider an irrational extent, uh, and so you know, Xi Jinping now has to deal with this uh, 
this genie that's out of the bottle or, you know, the, the toothpaste that's out of the tube that you can't put back in his, his biggest uh, challenge is that he might run into a situation um, in which he can only survive as a leader and maybe the communist party can only survive as the ruling party. If he takes drastic action to appease uh, the virulent, angry nationalism of the people. Uh, and that could be a scenario in which maybe it means invading Taiwan, reunifying uh, China as one giant state. It could mean attacking another old foe from World War II, Japan, an old uh, colonial enemy. Uh, and that, that could mean invading the Senkaku Islands, which is a little uh, island chain um, off of Japan, uh, and, and that action would require the U.S. to show up, uh, maybe to send in Marines and to defend this little island chain that really has no strategic interest. But uh, its only strategic interest is that it, it pleases Chinese nationalism to take it uh, because it's, it's a part of Japan. Um, it, you know, it could be uh, something involving North Korea, you know, maybe, um, you know, a mass action against North Korean refugees or something involving South Korea. There's a South China Sea. Like there, I mean, I could go on and on with scenarios, but there's a lot that could happen. But that that is the risk that, it, you know, he might be in a situation in which he he must become more aggressive than he already is, or else he's gone in a coup d'etat. There are hardline forces in the military who truly believe that Mao is the greatest leader. Um, there are hardline people in the in the intelligence services and in, in the general population and, and also in the elites. I, I just think that when looking at China, we should not underestimate um, the like the, the I guess the, the the communism or like communism isn't quite the word, but the um, the the like the emotional undercurrent that defies you know, this sort of Western rational capitalist thought that it is very important to defend the nation and to attack when the nation's prestige um, is under threat. And that could mean actually launching an invasion of Taiwan, even if it's against China's uh, immediately rational interests. So, uh, Jeffrey, what do you put, uh, what's like your over-under on China invading Taiwan in the next 10 years? I think that something's going to happen. Um, so I'm not totally sure if China will full on invade Taiwan, um, but it's likely that there will be uh, some kind of conflict around that region. It could also be um, in J regarding Japan, as I talked about before. So, so the thing about Taiwan is that it has similarities to North and South Korea in that, like, so North and South Korea, it's one nation, but it's divided and both countries uh, claim the entire the entirety of the other country. They see it as uh, they see it as one Korea. Uh, and China and Taiwan have similarities. It's not totally the same, but the idea is, uh, you know, there there are there are two Chinas in practice right now, but there needs to be one China. Uh, and the PRC, the People's Re the, the mainland China, the Communist China, you know, the the way that their leaders see it is that. There cannot be two Chinas forever, you know, and, and think about any country that, 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 I mean, that, that is a fair comparison. You know, imagine if America were divided into two in the civil war, um, you know, I, I mean, imagine, you know, any country, East, West Germany, like none of these countries would want to be 
seen as two forever. And there would be a lot of pressure on both sides to do something to the other side to try to bring them back into the fold. In this case, it's one giant China. I mean, it's like one massive country next to a little island. So it's not quite the same. But um, I, I do think that there's a good chance that, you know, maybe China won't try to capture all of Taiwan in the future that, I mean, it could prove a little too risky, but um, they could launch, you know, some kind of uh, covert operation or, uh, you know, uh, you know, some kind of airstrike that, you know, maybe uh, creating, uh, creating the perception of an airstrike by another power to justify some kind of military action. Like I could totally see it getting out of hand if the right dominoes fall into place. Huh. Interesting. And yeah, I think the, the American appetite for American empire is relatively less now than it's used to be. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. Okay. We, we have one, one last question caller. We have Michael. And then after that, I think we should probably wrap it up. It's, it's kind of late on, on Jeff's, uh, can we do one more question, Jeff, or are you, are, Let's go are you, that? okay. Uh, boom. Here we go. Welcome, Michael. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks for a great program. I just had a quick question. Uh, what are China's weaknesses other than the narrative we typically hear about economic stagnation and then people possibly revolting or getting rid of the uh, powers that be at the top? I think that um, one of China's biggest weaknesses right now is its rural poverty. Uh, I, I think that. Uh, similar to what I said before, you know, there there is a narrative of China rising, but we tend to ignore the underbellies because they're they're very difficult to document. Um, they are covered up by a lot of propaganda and a lot of very sophisticated public relations work. Um, but you know, like, so the thing about rural poverty is that that for any nation, any large nation that has a massive uh, peasantry class. Um, that you know, in the modern world, that has always been a a major potential downfall. It has just been a um, a gaping hole uh, that that needs to be closed, but can't be closed easily. Um, and this goes back to Tsarist Russia. You know, it has particularly afflicted many communist regimes uh, going through the twentieth century. Um, you know, Karl Marx famously assumed that. The uprising would happen in in Britain with its industrial, the bourgeois uh, middle class, but that that has hardly happened. Uh, the uprisings have happened where the peasants are landless and disempowered um, and have nothing to lose by revolting. You know, it's like, well, I'm going to die. You know, may as well just die in the revolt, and do what I can for my family, and you know, maybe they'll have a better life in the future. Um, that is the kind of. Uh, I, so I, I don't think that that particular problem where it's, will it, it won't tear apart China. It won't like, you know, t- turn China into a democracy or, you know, tear apart the country into different fiefdoms. Um, but it will severely uh, weaken it. Um, and this is going to continue because China now has a declining population. It really needs to find, uh, you know, sources of highly skilled labor, you know, the people who can put it together the um, the smartphones and the, the cars and, and the other things for its own people, its growing consumer class. Um, the, the rural peasantry cannot do that. They're stuck. Um, they're stuck in this feudal state that they've been in for a thousand years. 
Uh, and, you know, it, it's that deadly combination of having the, these rising expectations of, you know, everyone, everyone in the urban class gets their new cars and gets their new uh, gadgets and their new apartments, um, but they have to rely on somebody to make it for them. And, you know, there, there's this massive gap with the, the farmers who can't really do that, who are going to get, you know, more oppressed than they already are. That is the, uh, you know, one of the tinderboxes that could definitely... Uh, you know, explode, you know, maybe not topple the government, but it will weaken the system, I think, significantly. Yeah, one thing I've often wondered about is the demographics of China. It has this like horribly inverted population pyramid. And when you actually look at, I forget what the exact demographic metric is, but like number of workers coming online, like working age people, whatever it is, 18, the U.S. just crushes China, China on, on a relative you know, percentage basis. And, um, it, you know, demographics kind of our destiny. I, anyhow, it's a side note, and we're kind of at the end of the show, but it's, it's one thing that's always struck me that how aging societies don't typically do well, and they're typically not up for many adventures and not very expansionist either, usually. Um, it, but I, I think recently China's actually reversed its birth policy, right? I mean, I, I, I imagine, given its technocratic elites see this coming a mile away, and have tried to actually stave this off. Yes, they they did they did reverse the birth policy about seven years ago, uh, and now people can have. It, it depends on what group you're from. So different ethnic groups are given different birth rates or different numbers of children they're allowed to have. If you're a Uyghur, um, you're right now the the Uyghur allowance is something like one. I think it's one or two. I think it's two children now. If you're Han Chinese, I think it's it might be three children with a permit. I'd have to go back and check the exact numbers. I just don't remember. Um, but th- so the reversal of the birth rates, uh, yes, it could make a difference. But, you know, keep in mind, that's also, you know, we're talking at least 21 years in the future when the next generation starts to balloon. These are very long term um, changes that are that are quite far off. Uh, what, so if you were so comparing, look at China compared to Japan and South Korea, two extremely successful nations that accomplished what China wants to do, minus the democracy that they now have. Uh, Japan and South Korea, you know, they they had already reached, you know, peak uh, peak technology, peak economy by the time uh, before their populations were starting to decline. The Japanese decline began in the early 1990s. Its population was already on the, uh, the downslide. Um, so... Like, you know, with, with China, China's not even, like, in terms of wealth, in terms of um, uh, wealth and technological prowess, innovation, China is uh, not near what Japan had at the equivalent time or South Korea about 10 years ago when its population started declining. Um, so that's, that, that's a big problem because China's a bigger country. It's got a lot more diverse, uh, disparate ethnic groups. Uh, you know, there there are lots of local Communist Party offices. It's a decent it's a it's a much more decentralized place, ironically, despite the authoritarianism um, and much harder to run. So if you have a declining population, you know, with rising expectations, with a massive uh, peasant underclass, that is a it's just it's a it's it's a uh, it's just a stew of trouble. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing I'm sure that they're thinking about this already. But I, I don't think they've found a clear solution to that, that combination yet. It's just so foreign to me that they actually apportion your sort of ration card of available children based on your ethnicity. It's just a level of social control that is kind of 
shocking for the Western mind. Um, well, uh, thanks, Jeff. I think um, you managed to make, paint for us, uh, you know, the, the suitably horrifying picture <laughs> of Chinese society. I definitely recommend the book. I actually included a link in the tweet that went out. Um, wh when did the book come out, Jeff? Was it recent? It came out last June, so June twenty twenty one. Got it. Yeah, because I because I had I had read about your Samsung one, and then it, for some reason I only recently learned of of your of your China one. Um, well, th thanks for your thanks for your insight there. Um, and um, again, good to have you on board, Lincoln. You joined, I think, after I joined, but we're both um, we're both in the same boat now. And in fact, I I think I'm I'm due to be out on the East Coast actually relatively soon. So I, knowing Zach, who's in the audience, he will collude behind the shadows uh, to make us co-appear at some event, almost certainly. So I'll get to, to finally meet you in person. Wonderful. Looking forward to it, Antonio. And thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being here. Thanks, everyone, for joining in. And just as a plug, um, I don't know if people saw the tweet thread yesterday. Kind of a busy week in pull request land from the interview perspective. Um, for a text Q&A, I'm interviewing David French, noted uh, conservative columnist, who, uh, if you believe some conservatives, is entirely responsible for everything wrong in the conservative movement. Um, part of my interview is to figure out why everyone seems to think that and also get to know him a little bit better. I've been reading him for a long time. Um, and then on Thursday, I'm uh, chatting to Professor Brian Keating, who's a uh, distinguished professor of physics at UCSD. He works in uh, cosmology and astrophysics. He, um, he originally wrote a book called Losing Nobel Prize, about starting one of the projects that led to Nobel Prize, but not actually getting the Nobel Prize himself. Um, and then he wrote a book about Nobel thinking in which he interviews a number of Nobel Prize winners and kind of figures out how is it that brilliant people actually manage to apply themselves and get uh, an honor like the Nobel Prize. So um, another call-in thing this Thursday and then a text Q&A for those who also subscribe to the Substack uh, coming with David French as soon as I manage to transcribe, transcribe that interview. Thanks everyone for joining. And um, if you wanted to re-listen in or share this, I'll be publishing it as I do all the shows in the next 10 or 15 minutes, and I'll share the shareable link. Thanks again, Jeff, and uh, good night, everybody.